This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined on Football CFB by a very special guest, a former Republic of Ireland international. This man has played for Aston Villa, Everton, where he scored a very crucial goal that we will, of course, discuss at Bolton Wanderers. Um, he was also player manager over in the League of Ireland at Bohemians as well. He now has a very interesting career post-football. Gareth Farrelly, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Callum, a pleasure. Um, looking forward to speaking to you. The the first thing I want to discuss with you is your career post-football, because you now work in law, which is quite an unusual thing for a footballer to do. How did that come about? You know what, it sounds funny to say it. There's a perception that it's unusual, but there are people who have ploughed the path before me. So Stuart Ripley was a lawyer after he finished playing, and like Stuart won the Premier League with Blackburn. He's excellent. Uh, Udo Onwery played at Fulham, played at Blackpool. He's a partner with a law firm in London and he deals with sports law and a lot of uh, private client work as well. So I think there's been a few people before me. So it is still perceived as possibly an unusual pathway, but by no means am I an outlier or one of the only ones that's done it. So, um, yeah, there's a few. There's a few of us. And in terms of um, working in law, are you still involved within football as part of that role at times as well? Yeah, I think football is it's ingrained in our DNA. I think when you've had a lifetime involved in it, you're never really far away from it. I think the nice part about it now is that um, I deal primarily with commercial litigation, but I have a, a sports law practice and I'm, I'm an arbitrator as well. So it's quite nice that you can still kind of dip in and dip out and law and sports law is a kind of evolving and developing practice area. So there's lots of interesting work. So I think for me, having been having been an athlete, having been a footballer and used to being outside and used to football for so long, it's still nice now to get a call or get a case and be involved in something around football because there's an added kind of an increased interest in and around that. So I think I'm quite lucky. You you talk about your passion for football. It started at a very young age. You played for Home Farm back in Ireland before being spotted by Aston Villa. What was that experience like of football growing up? Callum, it sounds funny to say, I know we've all been doing these podcasts in lockdown, but like you start thinking back 20 odd years, I think it was um, no different to everybody. Probably the simplest answer is that we all had aspirations and dreams of coming and playing in England and playing professionally. And I think Home Farm at that time had an incredible reputation with regards to people that had played for the club and then moved away and done very well. Ronnie Whelan played his schoolboy football at Home Farm and there's people that subsequently played. So I think it's just a natural progression for everybody. I think anybody who's possibly listening is that you have your kind of first schoolboy club, which is your local team, which is where you're playing with your mates and you're kind of growing and developing. And then as you think about where's the next natural step, for me, that was home farm. And it was kind of a step I, I took and pushed myself. And then 
from home farm playing at a higher level if you like in the Premier Leagues within within Dublin at that time you started to realise that there was scouts who started looking at games with potential opportunities of being invited to the UK or Scotland or wherever for kind of trials and then the next step from that was trying to trying to secure an offer with regards to becoming a full-time professional footballer so for me when I look back and you are testing me it's like home farm was a great time and then that in turn opened up an opportunity alongside kind of playing with the junior international sides to go on on, on trial to different clubs and then try and pick what you felt at that time would be the best club for you from a personality point of view but also the best opportunity possibly to break into the first team and develop a career and it, it, it's funny now isn't it because we they were the days you talk about a career, whereas you look now as like people perceive six games as a career. It's like quite strange how it's changed. I think my generation, you were looking at people that a career would have meant 12 to 15 years playing football, whereas now a career can be a lot shorter than that. Absolutely. And, and for you joining Aston Villa at the age of 16, how did you settle into, into life in, in Birmingham and at such a big club at a young age? Was it daunting at first at all? I found it incredibly challenging and, and extremely difficult because I would have been a home board very much and moving away from home, I don't think there was possibly a more traumatic step I could have taken, leaving family, friends and everything you've ever known. And I think that possibly ill-equipped to deal with everything that came my way because like, you go from, you go from being an aspiring footballer and having delusions, if you like, of how, how, how football works and then you're cast into this world which is ruthless, incredibly different, different to anything you've ever known and you have to try and adapt to that. And again, for me at that time, I didn't sign as an apprentice. I signed a pro contract straight away. So on my 17th birthday, I signed for Aston Villa and that brought additional pressure because it was like, here's this young pro coming into the club. You had the apprentices at the time who you were training with who just looked at you as a as a threat and somebody that had earned a position of, you know, an exalted position before what they perceived to be due and just wanted to kick lumps out of you every day. And then you had higher up the chain people looking with an expectation that, well, as a young pro, your progress was going to be quicker. And it was difficult for me because after a really, really strong start, which tends to happen because when you go in, you get the emotional kind of bounce of whole new experience, all positive. I, I picked up an injury and the truth is the injury kind of wiped me out for that first year. So you you end up having to then balance injury, not playing football, which is the very purpose you moved away for. And then you have homesickness and dealing with all different challenges and elements as well. So it was an incredibly challenging time. When you look at that Villa team that, that you went into as, as, a, as a youngster, as you mentioned, you start training with the first team. There's big characters in there. Brian Little, of course, is in and around the club as manager. What was that experience like when you started training with the, with the first team? Um, like the, the experience of itself is positive because I think there was a massive Irish contingent at Aston Villa at that time as well. So I think this is the, it's like the, the process of development, if you like, is that First off, you're a part of the youth team, as you said, when you sign and you start. And then your aspirations are to try and get towards the reserve team. 
And then when you get there, the next step is like, I want to get involved and look to break in and play with the first team. But Ron Atkinson signed me. And obviously Ron had initial success there my first season at the club. They won the Coca-Cola Cup then, I think it was called. And Ron was then sacked. Brian Little did come in. And for me, yeah, it was it, it, there was a positive because you start to see yourself training with the first team, adapting. Again, it's like you're back to the position of being tested to see whether you can hold your own with the first team and then not only hold your own, but start to impose yourself there with a view to getting game time. And it's the same process for everybody. And that, that hasn't really changed irrespective of the lag of time and what we're talking about now is that it's still the same now and you can see it now and how young players are introduced how successful they are in that introduction dependent on how well the team itself is doing and then whether they're going to have a sustainable period in that team so it's yeah it, it, it was a development like 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 most people i would say aside from some of the other issues that went on at the club so you, you, yeah. you talk about development. You also had a loan spell at, at Rotherham. How important was that in your development as a footballer? Because we've seen it with so many players, a loan spell can really help kick them on. Yeah, but to be honest with you, it's probably one of the best times I ever had. People, so people, when people talk to me now about football, it's quite interesting the things you remember. But you're exactly right that a loan period was perceived by the club as, right, men's football, let him go out and let's see how he gets on. And I signed for John McGovern and Archie Gemmell at Rotherham. And again, as a young guy, you don't have an absolute understanding of the history or the careers that they had had as players. But you started to look into it and you realised that they've had exceptional playing careers. And they were really, really brilliant with me. And then not only that, you go into a club environment with players and playing in the first team and the players were, were incredible. So... I would always advocate alone, but I think in that instance and looking back on my own career, I would easily say that I made lifelong friends in that first loan spell at, at Rotherham. And it was, a, it, was, it was a brilliant time for me to the point where I didn't actually want to go back to Premier League club at the time because I, I had enjoyed myself so much. In terms of Villa, you didn't play as many games as you would think you, you did in the sense that the national team were obviously still looking at you. You were considered to be a player with, with a lot of talent. How do you reflect on Villa based on that? Well, the, Aston Villa were a very good team at that time. And it was, a, it, it was a strong team. But there was a whole host of other issues that went on in the club at that time and relationships with different coaches. And I think there was an element of all of those things played a part in it. And again, that's not, it's not unusual in a footballing context. But I think when I look back myself, I think I was in and around the first team for a long time without really getting a sustained run of the team. Even if I did get a sustained run of the team, I knew I was never going to be regular because of relationships the manager had with different players. But then I was also balancing that against other relationships with different coaches within the club that made it very, very difficult for me. Where I actually had more full caps for Ireland than I had appearances for Aston Villa. And there was a whole host of reasons for that. So again, I don't really give it a lot of thought now, but it is it is what it is.
You, you talk about having more caps for Ireland and appearances for Aston Villa at the time, which is quite unique. What was it like being involved in the national setup when you're there with so many fellow countrymen? Is that the perfect release when you're having a difficult time at club level? Yeah, very much so. And because I was having such a difficult time at the club, there was an element of escapism within it. And it was a new era, if you like. Mick McCarthy and Ian Evans had come in at a time after the Jack Charlton era. And they had to basically start again. So even with regards to the squad, and I, I speak to people about it now, you had there was a balance. You had people that we had grown up idolising in the squad still. And then you started to get a changing of the guard, if you like, of a younger, more dynamic group of Irish players that were playing and breaking through into force teams. And that started to build kind of a different group and a different squad. And I think Mick McCarthy did an incredible job with that. And again, it was a really, really positive place to be. And I think everybody used kind of look forward to the international breaks because there was that togetherness within the squad. And I think it was a, it, that was a really, really good time. But for me, it was tempered because it challenged your own belief system. And it, 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 it brought a whole different host of issues to the fore because you'd find yourself in the Irish squad and you would be looking and again thinking, well, hang on a second do I deserve to be here because I'm the only one not playing first team football or I'm, I'm on the bench every week or I'm not really involved. And it like, it created doubt, a lack of confidence and insecurity around those things. And I think that's one of the difficulties because youth is sometimes wasted on the young and it's kind of how to navigate through all of those emotions, you know what I mean? And fears when you don't really have the maturity to understand how it all works or the necessary network around you to kind of support you in dealing with all of this because even going home whilst you had the the comfort of being in the squad and it was in some way the haven you still had people saying well how come a sec how can you be how can you be in the Ireland squad and doing as well as you're doing but not be playing for your club and it, it, it brings different challenges and again those things as the game evolves those fundamental basic issues are still the same and in terms of your experience of club football, you talked about the frustration of not getting a sustained run in the team. How did you feel when Everton came in for you? Because they're a massive football club in their own right as well. Well, not just a massive football club. They were the team I supported as a boy. So for me, it was I grew up with posters of those people on my wall. And it was always one of the things that I'd aspired to do was to play for the team I supported. So in coinciding with kind of the end of my time at Aston Villa and an understanding from me that I was always going to leave, Aston Villa became really interesting because initially I was offered a contract which was a basic renewal contract. There was no real care or consideration went into it. But I actually played some first team games then at Aston Villa and I ended up getting offered another five contracts after that because having had me there for a period of time and not really having any kind of time for me or I would say looked to develop me as a player or a person. When I got into the first team and did really well, all of a sudden I became an asset and a potential value again. So there was a further five contracts offered to me, all of which I turned down. And then Howard Kendall took over at Everton again for the third time and wanted to speak to me. So for me, the move then became really, really easy because it was like, well, it was, it was people would say it was a no-brainer with regards to an opportunity to play for the manager who I'd grown up revering and then also to play for the club that I'd supported since like 1983. So it was quite easy in that respect.
what was Howard Kendall like as a as a as a person? Because you're right, he's an absolute icon of football management. Yeah, well, I think in Everton terms, I don't think there's a manager that will ever get remotely close to what he achieved. And I think that I still have the benefit when we're allowed to go outside of going down to the club and still being able to see some of the players that I grew up, as I said, as as a fan primarily. And that was the purple period, if you like, in Everton's history where they had an incredible run. And people would say the only travesty of that time, if you like, was that they never got an opportunity to compete for the European Cup. So as a manager, and I think the game had started to change around then, but he had an incredible energy. He had an incredible love for the game. And I think he was he, he was dynamic. And I think players, he people would have said he was a player's manager, is that his concern would have been around the players. And he, he wanted to make sure that the players were happy. So it was, a, yeah, it was a natural and history's written with regards to playing for the club you supported as a boy was was the dream come true in that respect. It was a very difficult. You're first... me now because we're going back years, Cal. <laughs> it was a very difficult um, first season um, for you, Everton. The club were struggling at the wrong end of the table. But when you look at the way the season ends and you score that goal that preserves the Premier League status, although it's not exactly what you would maybe have dreamed of doing for Everton when you consider the success the club have had, it was still an incredible moment which saved them at a time where they needed it. Yeah, very much so. But I, again, I think, I think again, I was probably naive. Tell them, I think you look at things, you know, where you sit down now and you do a SWOT analysis or a pestle analysis on the reasons for moving or not moving. I think Everton had had difficulties three of the last four seasons before I went there and you don't think about those things it was it was purely emotion like the reality was Everton have come in for you I'm an Everton fan I want to play for them and I think that one of the things about Villa that did differ was although say I was I was a sub every week who might get on for a few minutes and not making that absolute breakthrough that was a team that was flying high in the top six at that time very very strong team so it was a completely different type of pressure to get used to because you go from that to, despite being a fan of Everton, I would say I probably didn't have an absolute understanding of the intensity that went with playing for Everton and living in Liverpool. And it, there was a period of adjustment to that. And if you don't play well at Everton or if the team is having a difficult time, the fans let you know. And it took a period of time for me to adjust to that level of intensity and pressure. And it was an incredibly difficult season. But you look back now, like you've said, and you think I had an incredibly positive outcome. So, and thankfully Everton have not found themselves in that situation again. So personally, it was a challenging time. One that you kind of came through. And then from a club point of view, as I say, the clubs continued to get stronger and gone on. So it's a, yeah, it was, a, it, it was a different time. But again, in, in the vagaries of how football works, to have that incredibly positive outcome, Howard Kendall was sacked within a week of the season finishing. New manager came in, Walter Smith, and then basically first few days of pre-season turned around and said, well, you can leave. And that's the reality of the game. You, you mentioned the fact that that is the reality of the game and, and you're right, I've spoken to so many players where there is a managerial change or there's a, a change in ownership or whatever it may be at a club and, and things things just become difficult for them. How do you feel when Walter Smith says that to you? Do you know it's over at Everton or is there part of you that thinks, I'm going to prove you wrong? Well, I think there's always the element within athletes, again, football is incredibly resilient 
And I think there's the bit where you think I'm going to prove you wrong. But the fundamental reality is new manager comes in. What invariably happens within clubs is that they're given more money than the previous manager to justify sacking him in the first place and to prove that they were right with their decision. And that manager has his own ideas. And again, this comes back to the kind of the maturity point as well, because you go from having that outcome at the end of a season, which was a season like no other, to playing eight minutes football the following season. I was a substitute against Newcastle. And even within that, you're still fighting against that system by thinking, well, I'm not going to give in and I want to try and break through, but you are treated in a different way. You're not allowed to train with the squad anymore. You end up training with the youth team in a different venue. You're playing in the reserves. You're brought back in when others are given days off. The only time you got to the training ground again was on international breaks, which was to make the numbers up. So you're never not tested as a footballer and, and in different ways. And it's in ways the public may not even be aware of. And they only see what happens on a pitch. And it's, it's by no means straightforward. And then it becomes, again, like a, like a conflict and a battle of wills as to trying to stay in it, even though you don't really know what a positive outcome would be. And it was, it, it, it was strange for me because you can think about loans, you could think about different things, still wanted to play for Everton. And it was only the season after that. And this was quite strange because there was a group of us who had kind of been discarded or weren't playing or they wanted us to move. And again, we wouldn't have been on anything like the salaries that are in place or as a given now, but it was pre-season, I think, started on the 7th of July. And they had us back on the 14th of June, three weeks before everybody else. So we were, so whilst the guys were sending us text messages on holiday, telling us where they were and they were sunning themselves, we were running around Croxted Park, which was a means of trying to galvanise us to get out to avoid a punishment, if you like. And that was part of the game at that time as well. That's incredible. Um you leave Everton, you, you join Bolton, and again, talk about big moments. You scored that famous goal for Everton um, that keeps them up, and then for Bolton, when you go there, you score the opening goal in the playoff final that sees Bolton return and, and get to the Premier League where they where they want to be. What was that experience like, scoring a goal of that magnitude at Wembley? Well, it was incredible because it was it, it, it's like a whole different host of emotions, if you like, because you take a step down because you want to play football. And, and this comes back to the, the myth and the anomaly sometimes is that all, all, all footballers want to do is play. <laughs> it's like boxers. You train and you train and you train. And then if the fight doesn't come or the game doesn't come, you feel like you're, you're standing still and you're not achieving anything. So I was Sam Allardyce's first signing at Bolton. And it was quite strange because the Bolton fans tended to focus on the goal at Everton that it got them relegated. So there was kind of a story alongside that. And then to get promoted the following season at Cardiff because Wembley was being redeveloped was, was a huge positive outcome again coming off the back of what had been an incredible season because there wasn't really a major expectation that Bolton would go up that year. The two outstanding teams, well, I would say we were a very strong team, but Fulham had been excellent, which was Jean Tigana's first season there. And Blackburn had been incredibly strong under Graeme Souness. They had a really strong squad as well. So Nobody really expected a lot from us. And then we achieved promotion. And in between that, you're obviously you were playing against teams week in, week out that had an opportunity at different times to possibly sign me and had chosen not to. One of one of whom would have been, say, Preston in the playoffs. So there was always that added motivation to kind of showing people that 
despite what had happened at Everton and football is purely a game of opinions that you were still able to play and have, have an impact. And that kind of coincided with a really, really positive time for, for Bolton. I had five years there. One of the teammates that you had, I've got to ask you about during your time at Bolton is, 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 is Ricketts, Michael Ricketts. He was a striker who had a real purple patch where he looked like everything he hit went in and then he obviously had the spells that were slightly more difficult to be, to be kind to him. What was he like to train and play with? Well, Michael Ricketts was, was a great guy. And again, there was always this a misperception in the public about what he was like. And in, in, in bringing the story back a little bit, the point was when Bolton lost in the semi-final of the playoffs to Ipswich the season before that, some of the higher profile players, if you like, moved on. So you had uh, Klaus Jensen, Mark Fish went to Charlton, Ida Johnson went to Chelsea, and Ida Johnson was exceptional. And there was a fear within the squad that how are they going to replace the goals, not only the goals, but the all-round ability of either. And that was where Michael Ricketts was signed from Walsall. And again, from the moment he came into the club and it was a positive environment, he scored a huge amount of goals that season in the championship, some from the bench, some from starting. But he carried that on immediately within the Premier League. And, and again, for historical context, if you think about no sooner was the playoff final over that year than there was pundits and purported experts talking about Bolton will be the first team to be relegated and they'll be gone down by Christmas. And then within kind of the first four to five weeks to the season, Bolton were top of the table. And and Michael Ricketts kind of carried that four months. So there was there was, you know, I would say unfair media and coverage around Michael Ricketts because he was an exceptional finisher. He was incredibly strong, incredibly quick. And he, he was a really, really good guy. But I think what happened to him then is, as with a lot of us, you get distracted by external things going on. And that can be a breakdown of a relationship within management. That can be interest from other clubs. That can be the challenge of earning more money and how that affects your motivation and your ability to stay as focused as you had been. And his form started to, to drift and his relationship with the manager started to drift and he ended up moving to Middlesbrough, which was a move he wanted. And that then was on the back of having done that well that he ended up getting into the England squad and earning an England cap. So f- football is a game of distraction. Like you say, for us, even as you get older and you retire, we all maintain our love for the game. And I think you'll probably see that in people you speak to all the time. But that doesn't necessarily mean people like how the game is now or the different challenges that are there. And that's why I say it's, it's, it's a distraction that there's so many things going on that can kind of take you away from that, the simplicity of just actually the game and playing. Absolutely. And and as you say, he did get an England cap, which is something that, that is, is a proud achievement for him and no one can ever take that away from him. In terms of your manager, no, he's a he's a very he's a very successful agent now, and he's still involved in the game. Do you know what I mean? So he's he's done very well. No, I'm glad to hear that. And and your your manager at the time, Sam Allardyce, um, he was obviously instrumental in, in establishing Bolton in the Premier League. What was he like to work with then? And are you surprised that he's still in management now with West Brom in 2021? So the first part is that instrumental. Yes, he played a part, but he also had very, very good players. He had very, very good players he inherited. 
and then he had very very good players that he brought in at different times which is probably credit to him but I think there was a very very kind of group there then I think Sam will look back on his career and he's become typecast in many ways around relegation specialist or you know his ability to take squads who are near the bottom of the table and keep them in the Premier League because we'll see what happens with West Brom this year now because he's got an interesting and challenging job to kind of maintain his reputation as never having been relegated so it'll be a challenging time for him as well but I think for him I think it becomes part of your personality is that people miss it if they're not involved in it they try and supplement or replace that buzz of being involved in the game by by punditry or different peripheral roles whereas there's nothing that they can quite find to replace that buzz of actually being in being in a job and I think that's what's happened with him is that there's different roles and opportunities that possibly come up over the years and he he loves being involved in the game after your spell at Bolton you obviously had a few loan spells throughout that time you have and obviously the spell at Wigan too you have the opportunity to become a player manager at Bohemians was that opportunity of of coaching and management ultimately too good to turn down well I, the first part with that as I say is I was an idiot Callum because I think what happens when you fall out all over the game right or you're in a club where even with Sam towards the end because we fell out you're you're not involved with the first game yet you're watching them and you want loan deals or you look at loan deals as an opportunity to just get out of that toxic environment and and the point is then I would probably say I'd fallen out of love with the game so you're in this position where I still had my contract at Bolton I'd fallen out with the manager you make bad decisions when you're in the eye of the storm so you're taking loan deals that really aren't in your best interest and that you're not necessarily going to improve as a player I had a short loan spell at Burnley again there were some terrific guys at Burnley but I didn't get on very well with the manager at the time I then went to Bradford under Colin Todd and Brian Robson and I had a brilliant time with them they were terrific again but even Brian Robson as a manager found himself in a situation and Colin did where despite having a really, really good group of players, the club went into administration and a lot of the players who had been on loan had to went back to their clubs and the club ended up getting relegated that year. And then for me, you, you're, you're trying to get away from Bolton, but fundamentally you end up back there. So it was like, I signed a short-term contract at Wigan because my wife was pregnant with our first child at the time. And you go into a summer then, having been at a Premier League club, and then all of a sudden you're, you've got no club. There's a lot of players out of contract. Wigan missed out on the playoffs on the final day of the season. And you're thinking, well, there doesn't appear to be a lot of interest or there's a misperception as to your personality or nobody really wants to commit to it at that point. So... I got offered the opportunity to be a player manager in Ireland and, and I took it. In terms of the role of a player manager, how difficult is it to separate the two roles in the sense that can you focus on the park fully on playing or have you still always get that bigger picture in your mind, which does it distract you at all from your game? 
Yeah, very much so, especially if your castle is built on sand. So I think Bohemians was the right opportunity at the wrong time. Uh, and I went home, I had a plan around player development. I'm as interested in it today as I was then. And there was the opportunity to develop an elite model for young Irish players who possibly didn't make the first wave of players that came across to England, but to have an environment and facilities for them to be able to uh, develop and thrive. And then the club would be able to realise uh, transfer fees when they moved to European clubs or primarily the lure of English clubs will always be the, the biggest one. But in my, in my naivety and kind of my quest to prove myself, you probably don't give the necessary due diligence to the position the club are in. So I inherited a, a dressing room with 12 players out of contract. I'd never known anything like that in my career. I inherited a dressing room where, as opposed to England, been sat next to people for 12 years and never knowing what their salary was. Everybody knew what everybody's salary was. So there was also, Bohemians was a fan's own club, which meant there was a chairperson and then 10 different directors. So you were going to these meetings and within kind of four weeks of being there, having agreed a budget and having agreed a structure of what we wanted to do over a period of years, they turned around and they said to me that, we're really sorry, Gareth, that we speculated heavily on the previous manager and the reality is what we promised you isn't going to be there. So again, you're kind of firefighting as opposed to being in a, in a proactive environment where you get an opportunity to put foundation in and develop a project so it very quickly became really really challenging so out of 12 players who were out of contract at that time I got to keep two and that again looking back old self the younger self there may have been a warning there where you go I'm not going to be able to be successful with this but you still want to compete and you still want to improve yourself and it becomes more and more difficult so Bohemians for me was an incredible experience I think probably one of the best experiences I ever had with regards to the experiences I was exposed to, but also the lessons I had to learn along the way, how to deal with crisis management. There was an issue every week. And that comes back then to your question, and I apologize. To deal with so many external factors. I had incredibly good staff there. But even within that, you're still the manager and kind of the ultimate responsibility sits with you. So I did it for two years and then I resigned because I came to a realisation that what I really wanted to achieve wasn't going to be possible. So I look back on it in an incredibly positive way, but um, I can see why so many young managers and people who step out of the game find that first job so difficult because there's a, such a desire an appetite to do well that also within that naivety you may sometimes not look at the club the position the club is in what's happened previously <clears throat> and what your chances of likely success are and even how you define success indeed and, and that's the the big challenges you've rightly said with the managing and coaching um, expectations are different from fans to owners to to everyone which can can be difficult and following bohemians you continue playing um, you have a spell with cork city um and then you have a, a period of your life that would challenge anyone you battle illness 
which I can imagine is something that you know, obviously you wouldn't wish that in your worst enemy. How hard was that to, to battle? And did you ever foresee yourself getting back playing after that, which you incredibly and admirably did? Yeah, I, and Callum, I'm incredibly fortunate with my illness that, that I, I survived. I'm, I'm still here today to talk about it. So I am a massive advocate of the NHS. We talk about what we're living through at the moment. And the fundamental reality is those people are incredible and they will be forever incredible to me. From the moment I phoned uh, 999 for an ambulance to the moment I was discharged from uh, Walsgrave Hospital in Coventry, Warwick Hospital, um, my local district nurses and doctors in Southport where I live, I had incredible care. And back to the athlete analogy again is that as soon as you know you survived, the next question is kind of, can I play again? And for me, I think that you spend so much time living in your head and being distracted that all of the rubbish, if you like, had kind of fallen away by then for me. And I just wanted to play football again. I didn't want to be a manager. I didn't want to be a coach. I didn't want to be a threat. I just wanted to put my boots on and see if I could do it. And I got back to an incredible level of fitness, probably fitter than I had been for, for years and years. And there was milestones along the way, like you talk about returning to training after it was a nine month recovery after my illness. There was more muscle than a pencil when I started back and you're like, you're running and you're like all of this kind of perceived power you had and strength is gone. And it's like, how, how do I start again? And I did my rehab and then I got back to playing with men, if you like. And then it was like, well, I, I just want to play. But Twenty percent of my stomach, forty percent of my pancreas, all of my spleen, part of my colon. I had really heavy scarring, and I knew, irrespective of my footballing ability and the freedom with which I was playing, that there was always going to be a question over. Well, what happens if he gets a bang again, or what happens if he gets, you know, a kick, or what happens, whatever. So that kind of started to put me on the route to thinking about like well transition and what about it's transition is the buzzword now but I think at that time you were probably thinking well if I can't play footy anymore what am I going to do and it coincided with during my recovery having a call to the house from the revenue for a debt that I had known nothing about and that kind of sparked my interest in the law as had my experience as Bohemian's manager and I had a legal matter to do with the court as well after my illness. So I was quite fortunate in that I didn't want to be a manager again at that time. I didn't want to be a coach. And that a new kind of route opened up to me, if you like. And that was that was the law. Nice. And again, and we talked about it at the start, an incredible uh, journey through football and an incredible career now. Uh, a couple of quick questions just before you go. Best players you played with and toughest opponents? Oh, toughest opponent. People always ask that question. I would say myself, because that's as simple as that. If I was right in my head and if I was comfortable or confident as I perceived me to be at the peak of my powers, I didn't really have any fear, apprehension or thought about who I was going to play against. Best players I played with. Um, I'm involved in a venture now with some of my friends, player for player. And we did this recently about thinking about best players. For me, the best player I played with was Paul McGrath. 
So some people will know him, some people may not, but he he was the best player by by a long way. And then I had the fortune to play with lots of other really, really good players as well. And the last main question I've got for you, based on your experience through football, your experience in life after football, that transition as you talk about, what advice would you give to, to footballers that are just starting out and footballers that are coming to the end? Well, the, the, the footballers who are starting out, I think it's to give everything to realise your potential and also try and be present. Sometimes like stand still and recognise where you're at and, and how fortunate you are and how hard you've worked to create that opportunity. And I think then there's, there's issues around looking at the people you have around you and kind of asking yourself, are these the right people? that are going to help me get to where I want to get to. I think that that's, that's a really big issue. And I think, again, despite the evolution of the game and the time span that we've spoken across, I think those issues are still as prevalent today as they were then and always will be. And despite how, you know, sexy football is perceived now as, as being entertainment and Hollywood, and just because you laminate something doesn't necessarily mean it's any better. I think the challenges are still very like visceral on a human level. And I think that's really, really interesting to watch. With regards to the players who've enjoyed a career, I think the thing you would always say to them is you don't have to know what you want to do tomorrow. <laughs> I think sometimes there's a pressure there when they finish that they naturally want to try a number of different things, which is great to see if they can find that niche. But I think it's a challenge and it's a challenge for athletes and it's a challenge for footballers that transition is by no means straightforward, especially dependent on how much of your identity has been associated with what you did for a period of time. And again, that's where football is ruthless because you can be the star on a Sunday and then be nothing on the Monday. And it's it can bring it can bring different challenges. And I think if, if you look at if you look at the game as a whole, if you look at forty percent of footballers face the threat of bankruptcy within five years of retirement, a third are likely to be divorced within twelve months of retirement. And now you're looking at 30 to 35% that have like mental health issues or addiction issues. It's people will always gravitate towards the life and the adulation that comes with being a player, but it creates incredible challenges for people when they finish. And I think for me, I go back to, I've had a varied and incredible life experience. I'm, I'm very, very lucky. And I think even with regards to a second career, what I would say is that you don't have to have the answer straight away. You can, you can kind of hopefully have the resources and the means to take a breath and give some thought to what you would actually really, really like to do. But conversely, I had this chat with somebody last week. It's quite interesting is that even, even speaking to you, Callum, because you think to yourself, oh my God, I'm going to have to go back over things again. But I go to bed now thinking, oh my God, I had a to-do list of eight things to do today for work. You know what I mean? And I only got four done as opposed to thinking, I wish I was back being a footballer again. There's certain things I miss within that fitness, you know what I mean? And dressing rooms and, and being, with, being with good people, but your life moves on. And I think, again, with an average career being eight years, it's only such a small part of your life that it's, uh, it will never stop challenging you. Brilliant, Gareth. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. No pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive
dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be